Phyllis and I were discussing the requirements of God's law, God's law, God's commandments for righteousness. And one of the things that we struck upon in our conversation was that if people would spend as much time working on right living rather than justification for their sin, which they have to spend an inordinate amount of time to do, it might change their lives. But what is it that drives man from doing what is right? Why is it that man would prefer to live in sin? Why is it that men who say, I am of Christ, become angry when people point out their sin, when they have erred in their thinking, or when they have misspoken? And so I thought before I go back to starting on my series on covenant theology, perhaps a good ending to this study of church discipline would be a sermon on how not to get into it. You want to avoid church discipline? It's not really hard, but you've got to work to do it. So I want to speak today on a subject that I periodically bring up and I preach upon every four or five years. Don't remember if I preached on it <clears throat> any sooner than, that, than now, but I thought it would be a value for us to consider the very essence of what we are trying to do in living the sanctified life. There are many who talk about our position in Christ, which is declarative. We are sanctified. We are being set apart to him. But they deny the concept of a progressive sanctification. And they say it doesn't really matter. I don't know if that's an excuse to allow for sin, whether it's really true theological ignorance, I do not know. But it is not what the Westminster Confession of Faith maintains that we have said we will use as our confession, and it is not what I believe that the Bible itself teaches us concerning living the Christian life. And so I want today to deal with this doctrine of sanctification. I don't know that I'll get it all done today, but I most certainly will give it my best shot. If you will, the text that I want to use is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. Listen carefully to the command that is given here. This is a command, a didactic, not an option but a command, and it is telling us something about our personal life that we live for Christ daily. Here, the Apostle Paul writes in Hebrews 12, 14-15, Pursue peace. 
Isn't it interesting that one aspect of sanctification is the pursuing of peace? With who? With all people. When conflict rises up in the church, what are we trying to do when we invoke church discipline? And before we get to that point, we try to get them into counseling. We try to resolve the issue. But if they will not hear, then we often have to do that very thing. We follow Matthew 18. We also follow the understanding of the procedures in an official capacity in which open sin and rebellion has taken place. But listen to what the writer of the inspired word of God says. Pursue peace with all people. That doesn't mean at all costs. That is to say, whatever it takes, including if it means you to sin, pursue peace. No, no, no. no. He's talking about the peace defined by God through the Holy Scripture. Pursue peace with all people. Now you have to work to do that. There's some people, very honestly, you know what I'm talking about. You've met him and you go, I don't like the guy. Don't like the girl. Something's wrong there. Can't put my finger on it. There is a problem. And you avoid him like the plague. You don't want to have peace with them. But the Christian has a calling to pursue peace. Pursue peace. Pursuing peace means to maintain the right attitude based on what is commanded in the law of God. How can it be anything else? Peace comes when God's law, through the power of the Spirit of God, that has filled our life in regeneration, that very atoning blood of Christ applied to our mind, says to us, I must be at peace with all men, with all people. I am to pursue peace that I may pursue the gospel. And so it is a, a very hard thing. When you get into larger churches, you get into churches. We have one here in town for years. I don't know if they still have the problem or not. They literally had cliques in their church, is what they called them. And if you weren't a part of this clique, you were rejected by the other cliques. Whatever that clique is, I guess it's kind of like a circle of friends. That's not pursuing peace. The peace that we're being told to pursue is with all people. Not some with this group or some with this group, but all people, all men. So he says, we have to pursue peace. No option here. Secondly, look what he says. And holiness. 
The concept of holiness of life is the living that life that we have been redeemed unto Christ. The purpose of Christ saving us is to make us a holy, righteous, sanctified people. Now you understand what he's saying. Pursue peace with all people. Think about this in your heart and mind. What's the second thing he says? And holiness. I ask you, can you say today, God's Spirit has so given you the grace and the real love of Christ through the work of the Spirit that you're willing to pursue peace with all people and holiness in your life with them? Why? He makes it very clear. If you do not pursue peace or holiness, you can't pursue one without the other. Salvation is a package, comes with a lot of duties and requirements, graces that are given to us by God. He says, without which, peace and holiness. No one will see the Lord. No one will see the Lord. Now, perhaps you're getting an understanding of what Peter says. Daily make your calling and election sure of God. Because you must be at peace with all men, not just with Christians, with all men. Pursue peace with all people. And holiness, without which no one if you are not pursuing peace with all people, if you are not pursuing the holiness in life you've been called and set aside for in the way that you live, the way you think, the way you act, here's the promise. Without which, one of these, both of these, not one, both. Without which, no one will See the Lord. He didn't say might not see the Lord. Notice it's emphatic. He did not say anything but one thing. If you don't pursue peace and you don't pursue holiness, you will not see the Lord. Looking diligently, least anyone should fall short of the grace of God. Notice what he says. This pursuing peace and holiness is a part of the grace of God at work in your life. Thus, we look diligently 
in our lives, an introspection at the lives of those people whom we say that we love, especially them. But even with the people who are out there in the world and the way that we approach all things with that holiness, that set-aside understanding of who we are, of the way we live, the way we act, the way we think, we are looking diligently, least I or someone else would fall short of the grace of God. You know what he's saying? That's combined with that concept of without which no one will see the Lord. You can fall short of his grace. And how many times have we seen those kind of illustrations? Remember when our Lord was talking about the seed and the planter who goes out to plant the seed? Some seed falls on hardened ground. It just dies, withers away. Some takes root and grows up to a certain amount. It dies and withers away. Some thrown out and the birds come and take it away. But the ground that is prepared and ready to receive the seed, it will bring forth fruit in its season. This is the same principle of looking diligently, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. What are we doing when we do self-discipline? One-on-one discipline. One-on-multiple discipline. When we tell it to the church and when the church acts. And then we even seek restoration after we've had to act and set somebody aside. We, We don't stop loving them. We don't stop seeking to live holy in relationship to them. We're trying to make sure what? They do not fall short of the grace of God. I don't care how how quote-unquote spiritual they sound. And I've heard some people, I'm going to be honest with you, I know they're not Christian, but when you hear them, you think, my, oh, my. There are some places you could put those people and they would be considered the most mature people in that church. They say the right things. People live off of emotions today. Not the word. Not peace and the holiness that comes only by the grace of God. They live on emotions. I was telling my wife this morning, there's a song out there, I know you've probably heard it, it's written by a guy by the name of Cohen. And it's called Hallelujah. Very popular. It's been sung, made popular. Uh, the, the woman who won the Britain's Got Talent sang it, Doyle, uh, made a big, big hit off of it. James Cohen is the guy's name. Canadian. And there's Christian groups that have taken this up and sang it. 
What's amazing, if you look at the words and you look at what's being said, this is a Jew, Jewish man who has converted to Buddhism who wrote this song. Truth is, there's nothing biblical about the song. As a matter of fact, in some places, it actually slaps down Christianity and upholds sensuality and everything else that's criminal according to the moral law of God. We don't think through these things. We don't consider these things carefully. We live off of emotion. And while it may sound good, it's like perfume. It may smell good, it may look good, but the truth is, when you drink it, it doesn't taste good. You see, that's what happened in the Garden of Eden. They looked at the tree and seen that what? It was to be desired. Probably tasty. Good fruit, big fruit. Who knows, could have been watermelons hanging on that tree. Since that day of the curse, watermelons have had to crawl on the ground on their belly. No, I'm just kidding. Could have been, but it could have been fruit that was desired. Desired to make one wise, to make this. It's an emotional appeal. And we don't stop and say, wait a minute. What am I thinking here? Well, Paul is saying, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. You got to be careful. You got to take an account. You got to look at, you got to examine. If someone is trying to save you from your own condemnation, wouldn't you appreciate that? but it takes effort. Well, listen to what he says. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble. Root of bitterness? Well, the root of bitterness is the fact you won't pursue peace and you won't put on holiness of life. You might say it, but you don't live it. And I'm going to tell you something. Saying it ain't going to get you to heaven. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7? There are many who will come unto me in that day and say, Lord, Lord, have we not done this in thy name? Have we not done this in thy name? Have we not done this in my name? And he says, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Well, they thought, they actually believed they were doing a good thing for God. And Jesus says, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I have never not known you. That's the wrong word because it doesn't convey to you. How can a God who is omniscient not know everyone who ever will exist? can be. It means more of an intimate relationship. I have never loved you. 
but it's an illustration. People can come and say, we've cast out demons in his name, we've prayed, we've done all this stuff in his name, aren't we good? And Paul says here, if you didn't pursue peace or holiness, you're not going to see the Lord anyway. How easy to deceive ourselves in thinking that we love Christ, that we love his church, and that we love his word, and that we will follow that word every day of our life. Anyway, this root of bitterness springs up and it causes what? Trouble. What is the result of this root of bitterness? What trouble is it talking about? It is this, and he says finally, and by this, what? The root of bitterness that's causing trouble, many become defiled. They become unclean. They don't pursue peace and they don't pursue holiness. Do you weep over those who fall in this category? Do you weep over the fact that often we don't show enough love, enough peace, enough holiness to their life? Do you weep over the fact that they show no real sense of peace with others or holiness of life? Well, by way of introduction, Bishop J.C. Ryle, he was an Anglican bishop, reformed, really tremendous writer and godly man, tried to bring Reformed theology back into the Church of England. Well, he wrote this concerning this subject of sanctification. Take note. He says it so well. The subject of sanctification is one which many, I fear, dislike exceedingly. Some even turn from it with scorn and disdain. Mark it down. Those who would despise sanctification of life dislike it exceedingly. Denounce it. Refuse to per pursue holiness of life, the perseverance of the saints. We persevere in our faith, and in the faith that has been given to us as a living faith, and thus we are seeking what? To develop the fruit of holiness of life, pursuing peace. He says, some even turn from it with scorn and disdain. And that's more of a personal response. They don't like it because it 
does it. It, it literally is painting a picture on them. It's kind of like saying, you know what? Give me a little paint here, red X on your life. You're not a Christian. Boy, I hate when they do that to us. And they say, this is what a Christian is, and if you don't fit here, you're over here with this group. Don't like it. Here's the light. Here's the darkness. They love the darkness, but they hate the light. Why? Because the works that they do are dark. The very last thing, says Ryle, that they would like to be is a saint. Everybody wants to be a saint. Nobody wants to pay the price of being a saint. Ah, there's a duty. There's a responsibility. You don't get saved by doing it. It's because you are saved. You do these things. The very last thing they would like to be is a saint or a what? Sanctified man. Yet the subject does not deserve to be treated in this way. It is not an enemy, sanctification, but a friend. To the Christian, it's a friend. It is a subject of the utmost importance to our souls. If the Bible be true, it is certain, listen to him, it is certain that unless we are sanctified, we shall not be saved. Now, just so you know, there must be a distinction between justification and sanctification. I don't want you to get confused. Sometimes we get confused in our doctrine. So the closest concept to sanctification and to another doctrine is justification in the sense of how they both are part of the grace of God in salvation. So let's look at the distinction so that we understand what we are not dealing with and but what we are actually dealing with. Justification may be defined as that legal act of God by which he declares the sinner righteous on the basis of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ in the work that he does in atonement for sin, that is, in dying and going to the cross. Understand, justification is not something that happens within you. You're not going to wake up tomorrow and say, I don't feel justified. Of course you don't, because it didn't happen in you. It takes place in the tribunal of God, where God declares legally through Christ, who is our 
surety, that legal surety that we will be saved upon his giving of his life and applying his alien righteousness in obedience to his Father and to us who are to be called by God. And he declares us right with God. You see, it's an action outside of the individual. This is why I think a lot of the churches, especially the legalistic fundamentalist churches, so many people keep going forward to get saved. They have no idea what justification is. And they wake up and they don't feel sanctified and they think, therefore, they must not be justified. It's not true. Not true at all. Justification takes place out there, not in here. Justification is not an act or a process of renewal within us, such as regeneration is, or conversion, or sanctification. And it does not affect our condition. We're in rebellion. But the state of which the sinner exists, I am in a lost state of being. Now I have been declared right with God through the power of the Spirit in regeneration through the applying of the work of Christ I see that I need Christ. I profess Christ for my salvation. I repent of my sins and I begin to pursue the life of holiness that has been commanded of me. That is, my condition is changed. My state is changed. I once was an alien and now I am a friend of God. I've been restored. I am right with God. But as a sinner, I am not right with God. I am at war with God. I am his enemy. And so justification changes my state. That's the legal part. Changing the state doesn't change the condition. That's a mistake to think it changes your condition. Changing the condition is all those other saving graces that accompany it. But logically, the first thing is for me to see my need to profess Christ, to ask God for that redemption of that he alone can give through Christ that has happened by the regenerating work of the Spirit, which is why I'm asking. And it changes my state of condemnation to non-condemnation. But it hasn't affected my person yet. This is a legal standing. You get it? It's a legal standing. It differs from sanctification in several particulars. First, justification takes place outside of the sinner in the tribunal of God, which I've just explained. Secondly, it removes the guilt of sin. 
guarantees eternal life to its recipient and is a divine act which is complete at once for all time. God does not say you're forgiven, you're restored, and then turn around and say, ah, you're back out. <coughs> once you've been justified, it cannot be rescinded. God does not change his mind. He does all things perfect. You are not God, so you cannot, in your quote-unquote, your free will, say, well, if I don't want the grace anymore, I can walk from it. I got news from it. If you can walk from it, you were never in it. You can't change a legal declaration of God. It's settled for all time. Third, it is a forensic concept, meaning it's legal. That is, it's a legal declaration wherein the individual is counted as righteous based on the imputed righteousness of Christ. Sanctification, on the other hand, takes place inside of man. And it removes the pollution of sin. And is a continuous, lifelong process. There is a declarative or a positional sanctification, and then there is a progressive sanctification of life. Now, if I could, just to give you an example, I won't go into all the details because of the time. I often have talked about this. As you all know, Phyllis Steele's in DUIs. If I got a DUI, most of the time she'd recommend that they have to have treatment. For me, it'd be the death penalty, but that's beside the point. So I'm driving down the road and I hit a tree. Here comes a cop. And he says, what happened? I'm trying to explain it to him, but I'm inebriated. I'm drunk. And so, you know, I come up with one of those cock and bull stories. Like, I was just driving down the street and this tree jumped out and bit my car. And the cop says, are you, you've been drinking? What? No. And nobody's ever been drinking when they get caught by the police. When they're drunk and inebriated. Of course not. They have enough sense about them to know they have just stepped over the line badly. So he arrests me and he takes me to jail. Now here I am, I'm in jail, and I don't want anybody to call Phyllis. That would not be a good act. So I call Dave and say, Dave, I got to go in before a judge tonight. He's going to find me and Phyllis can't know this. Can you come down and help get me out? Dave says, sure, I'll come in and help get you out. So Dave comes down, and he doesn't call Phyllis, which proves he's really a good friend. And we go before the judge, and the judge says, Pastor Talbot, this says that you broke our law because you were driving and 
you had an accident under the influence of alcohol. You're guilty of breaking the law. See, that's my state. I'm a sinner. I'm illegal. I stand before them, and right now I am in trouble with the law. The law's condemning me. And he, I, I said to him, you know, Your Honor, I'm sorry. I was uh, getting wine ready for the Sunday service, and I just kind of nipped on a little bit too much. As I was tasting it, making sure it was okay. And he said, uh-huh. He says, well, it's a $500 fine or 30 days in jail. Okay. Dave steps up and says, Your Honor, I'll pay the fine. In that sense, Dave is my what? He's the one who's interceding for me. He's like Christ. Let me pay the penalty. Of course, the penalty for sin was death on the cross. Now, in this situation, I'm just giving you an illustration. It's not exactly the same. Dave steps up and says, I'm going to pay it. And he looks at me and says, you are going to pay me back, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 I'll pay you back. If you can keep this quiet, I'll pay you back. So Dave pays it. Now, I am restored. The judge says, okay, your record's clear. That's it. You paid the penalty. You're no longer illegal. You're no longer an alien to the law. You're no longer a lawbreaker. You get it? My state has changed. But notice something. I'm still inebriated. So paying the penalty and restoring me to the law doesn't fix my problem of being inebriated. And so the judge turns me loose and Dave says, we got to get you out of here. We got to walk you 20 miles. We got to pour down a gallon of coffee, which doesn't work. It doesn't matter. Actually, more booze would be better. But anyway, so we do everything. We try it all. We drink tomato juice. We drink peach juice. We drink apple juice. We drink coffee. We drink Coca-Cola. We do everything we can do. When in reality, the best thing we could do is drink water just as hard as we could. Anyway, what are we trying to do? We're trying to change my condition. You get it? We're trying to sober me up. I'm no longer an alien to the law. I've been forgiven for violating the law. But my condition has got to change. In the Christian, when he gets saved, he's got a lot of work to do in his life. He's got to change his condition. And that condition, Paul says here in Hebrews, is to pursue peace with all men and holiness of life. i got a lot of work to do. I just can't run around and flap my lips and say, hey, I'm a believer. And then I live like hell. That don't work. Or I can just go sin as I will because I've already got forgiveness. I'm saved. I'm legally saved. I'm never going to lose it. I can just go and sin. No. 
The scripture teaches he that becomes saved is going to pursue the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of good works in his life. Why? Ephesians says we were ordained to walk in those good works. You're not pursuing it. You're not walking in it. You are not. You are not. A believer. Your state has changed and now your condition. The Spirit of God is within you and He is what? He is encouraging you. Change your path. Change your direction. As a matter of fact, He will push you to change. The calling of God isn't just to call you to salvation. But it's a continual call to himself in Christ for the rest of your life till you reach heaven. It's an ongoing call. It's not you were called. It's that you are being called continually. And so it is. We have this responsibility before God. What's that legal position has been, that state has been changed from condemned to non-condemnation. There comes the life that follows out of duty to honor him who has saved us, brought us together with Christ. Well, I'll stop there today before I go on. So I've got next week's sermon ready to go. I want you to think about what I've said, though. This is so important for you to understand. If you say your condition has changed, I will show you as we go through this, that all other conditions are being addressed through the graces that are given by God in our sanctification, adoption, etc. All of it's there. You're going to be a changed being. You're not going to pursue sin. You're going to control your life. Doesn't mean you won't sin. But when you do, the guilt will drive you by the power of the Spirit to seek forgiveness and to make it right. Your desire is to be right with God always. Where there is justification, you're going to find sanctification. The two are never so far separated nor never intertwined. Roman Catholic churches teach this. Thus part of your salvation requires human meritorious effort. We don't believe that. This is the righteousness of Christ legally declared that we are no longer under condemnation by God through Adam's original sin in the garden 
This is the life that we're called to live and to pursue in holiness of life. If you got this, you're going to have this. You'll never have this without this. This will be the lie. It'll be a false righteousness. And there's a lot of people out there who imitate righteousness, but they're not really righteous. That's why when we deal with church discipline, we are working to get people to awaken, to see. You may be in Christ. I can't tell you whether you're justified or not. But if this doesn't have any fruit to it, this is really questionable. Thus daily make your calling election sure of God. When this is not there, in full pursuit, when your life doesn't measure up to what is the moral requirements of God for Christian living, this is a lie. We must not get caught into the lie. So we study, and we study, and we do more study. We apply it. We apply it. We apply it. All that we study, we apply to our life. Because if there's one thing you don't want, you don't want to stand before God and condemn. He's not going to give you a second chance. If you, if you think, well, when I get before God, if he says, you were never a Christian. Well, wait a minute. Let me, let me see if I can change that. It's over. Your job was to change it here. My job was to make sure you change it here. Our job as a church is to make sure that we all get there. That's the hope. It doesn't lie in us, but it falls upon us to encourage, to point out, to examine, to look at our fruit. Nobody's perfect, not in this life. But we are people who are seeking to be sanctified, to live more righteous, to control our lives in everything that we do. I encourage you. Consider these things. Very important. We, in order to avoid church discipline, in order to avoid one-on-one -on -one discipline, one-on-two or three, telling it to the church, the church having to take an action, all avoided. How? Simple. By self-discipline. Pursuing sanctification of life. Pursue peace, my friends, with all men. And holiness from God. Because he said, if you don't, you're not going to make it. You're going to fall short. 
Falling short means that you thought you were on the path. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Know that you're walking toward the righteousness of Christ in your life. Your hope, your trust is in him alone and no one else. Shall we pray?